Welcome to another episode of On Production presented by Rapbook. Today, we dive deep into the world of independent cinema with a trailblazer in representation and inclusion, Shant Joshi. As the president of Faye Pictures, Shant's work is unwavering in its mission to decolonize Hollywood, prioritizing content for, by, and about queer, trans, and BIPOC individuals. His award-winning projects have captivated audiences from Sundance to Berlin, Cannes to Toronto. Beyond his work as a producer, Shant is actively shaping the future of the industry through roles such as the co-chair of the BIPOC TV and Film Board and as an advisory board member at the Future of Film Showcase. Today, we'll uncover the passion and drive behind his commitment to representation and the journey that made Shant a true force in the world of cinema. Welcome to On Production. Thanks for having me. Can you walk us through your journey and what inspired you to start Faye Pictures? Yeah, so I, I started a company with some colleagues when I went to film school before I started Faye Pictures, and that was a, a great opportunity to understand what I did and didn't want to do. Um, that company was founded by myself and five other folks from film school, and we all had different differing goals and intentions and all that kind of stuff. So the content, uh, which was quite compelling, uh, didn't necessarily feel like it uh, necessarily completely reflected what I wanted to do, you know, once I finished film school. So um, just as I was finishing film school, I decided I was going to move to LA and some of, my, some of my mentors, you know, told me, okay, you're going to go to LA and I went to film school in Toronto. You're going to go to LA and there's going to be a million different opportunities. You're going to be pulled in six different directions you know, because I don't know, they saw something in me that they were like, uh, if you, if you just go in, you know, aimless without any sort of like direction, you'll be pulled in six different directions and it'll be difficult for you to find your way. So the recommendation was when you go to LA, plant a flag in the sand and say, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And this is what my North star is. And that was in 2017. Um, so I, you know, had a couple, I guess I'd been going to TIFF because I'm from Toronto. I get a chance to go to TIFF every year because it's hometown. So I've been going to TIFF, I think, for at least six years. I, I went to TIFF first in 2011. So I think it's been six years I've been going to TIFF. And I've been seeing a, a wide gamut of different films and global cinema and Canadian cinema and American cinema. And what I felt was missing from a lot of uh, Canadian American and European cinema was uh, a lot of people who who came from immigrant backgrounds or were queer or trans or people who you know came from the black community or the indigenous community. So I realized that that was something that I wanted to reflect in my own work. It was something that meant something for me. I mean, especially in 2017, it was it was Trump's first year in his presidency, so a lot of people were asking me the question, "Why move to America?" you know, amidst all this. And so I felt like, you know, what Trump reflected was this division between a lot of different people, this frustration, and a lot of it had to do with economics, but a lot of it also had to do with, with social issues and uh, a lack of empathy, I think, for, you know, what some people call the other, right? So we see Mexicans, Muslims, immigrants, you name it. There was a lot of animosity that was being built up around that. 
so it, it it felt more of a prerogative for me to say okay i'm gonna move to la i'm gonna start a company i'm gonna be a producer um what kind of stuff am i gonna produce if a great script comes my way am i just gonna say yes to it or am i going to have a certain criteria by which i'm gonna make decisions for that so that sort of precipitated in this idea of i need to engage audiences with stories rooted in the perspectives of the other so that audiences can understand what that kind of life is like. And ultimately, the way we produce stuff at Fake Pictures is we are looking at aspirational stories, stories that show these quote-unquote others as sources of power, as, as, as people you know uh, who can overcome adversity uh, are not defined by their adversity but are defined by uh, the potential that, that they bring into the world and their ability to ideally bring people together. So a lot of the projects we've been doing have been that. And that's really powerful. That's really awesome. You know, in my business, I've always thought of the tools that we're building as a mechanism for more stories to be told. Because as you know, Creating movies is really complex and very expensive, and it makes it difficult for a large number of people with really important stories to be told, difficult to have their stories told. So it's really inspiring and really cool to hear about how your mission is kind of impacting our industry. It's really cool. What does the mission to decolonize Hollywood mean to you on a personal level? On a personal, so I grew up with a diet of Hollywood and Bollywood. So, you know, when I was a kid, I would watch a lot of like Disney stuff and et cetera, you know, Miramax and Searchlight and Sony Picture Classics and big studio movies, big Disney movies, big, uh, you know, all that kind of stuff, as well as, as well as, you know, Bollywood cinema, which is its own uh, sort of form of mainstream cinema. And what I took issue and I, I love independent cinema. I love world cinema. That's, I mean, going to TIFF, that, that's really what you get. Um, but I took issue with filmmakers uh, and even professors when I, when I went to film school who would be adamant that they're making films just for themselves. That, that That's, it's like, I'm, I have my vision for my movie and I'm going to make it and it doesn't matter if nobody watches it or everybody watches it. And my response to that is, as a producer, or not just as a producer, but as a, as, a, as a fan of storytelling through cinema, through film and television, if nobody's watching it, what's the point? It felt pointless to me. So while I don't completely love every big mainstream movie in Hollywood or Bollywood or whatever, I can learn to appreciate why your local mailman or person who works at McDonald's or um, the person who works at a big, you know, top 500 company will get out of the house, go to the cinema or turn on Netflix and watch this piece of content. And if we're trying to change hearts and minds, we have to understand why people make the decision to go out to the cinema or turn something on Netflix, watch it on their phone or whatever. And so it's, it's, it's really an emphasis on understanding audiences and understanding why Hollywood 
I mean, historically has worked so well because it has managed to bring not just an American audience, but a global audience to watch their films. It's, it's the only cinema that really has such a massive global reach. So, so that was the, the sort of idea of like, okay, so Hollywood has this massive global reach, but Hollywood is also purporting certain stories that position certain people in positions of power or in these sort of, um, we, are, we understand we're looking through an American lens, basically, when we look at Hollywood. And so to decolonize it is to say, well, we can take this massive global cinema um, and we can basically decolonize. Let's look at when we take away the colonial lens, we take away the American colonial lens of the world and look at it from a perspective of the people who are being affected by all these things, right? So when, for example, Jason Bourne or, or James Bond go to a country in Africa and blow shit up, right? We see it from their lens. And so the question is, what would our stories look like if we saw it from the perspective of the people who were, you know, there in that country in Africa being affected by these things? So that kind of, that's the sort of crux of all of that. You know, kind of the cool idea of like, let's double click in on the story of a person that was just affected by the traumatic event of somebody blowing up their village, <laughs> you know? Um, great. Well, look, um, that's super interesting. I mean, so you've produced a lot of different projects, but something that's just about to premiere is your film Queen Tut. Can you tell us what the experience of producing it? Yeah. So, uh, Queen Tut was actually a story that, um, I learned about through a colleague of mine at film school. So we were just in our first screenwriting class in third year. And the first step of screenwriting is write a log line. So my colleague, Brian, Brian Mart wrote this log line. An Egyptian teenager moves to Toronto, becomes a drag. And it's called Queen Tut. So it's the sort of like evocation of you know, an immigrant storyline mixed with a coming of age sort of drag queen storyline in that world of drag. How do you compare that with the world of sort of, you know, I mean, Cairo, Egypt, the the legacy, the history of, you know, um, that culture and, and all that stuff. So, and connect those two things. So that, that's what Queen Ted is. So that was in 2016, 2015, 2016 was when I first heard that log line and I got the chance to sort of throughout the class, throughout uh, my first, my last two years of film school, third year and fourth year, witness that project, that, that, that story get developed into, into a feature film script. So I picked up the option once we graduated film school. It was the first project I optioned for Fate Pictures and ran with it, developed it for about four more years with different writers coming on board and different perspectives and just making sure we're getting it right, you know? And then we financed it and and took it to production summer last year with um, Alexandra Billings, who was someone that we had discussed back in 2017 when I first optioned the script. We were talking about the character of Malibu, this this trans drag mother, and we discussed Alexandra Billings, and I was like, I don't know if we're able to get her. And early last year, we managed to put an offer in, and she accepted the offer, and now we've become good friends, and throughout the process of producing this film, you know, it's it's been a real great experience of 
bringing in what we do a lot beyond just the stories that we tell at Fate Pictures. We bring in people from those communities that of the stories that we're telling into the production process, not just in the cast, but also in the crew. So, you know, we worked with Hollywood Jade, who does uh, choreography for Canada's Drag Race. Um, so he came in and did the choreography for choreography for the film. Um, we had a fantastic um, uh, costume designer, Leland Mitchell, who it was actually his first um, first time costume designing a feature film. He must have been working, you know, on, on the film side, like on Star Trek as an assistant. But on the other side, he'd also been designing a ton of dresses for drag queens. So it made total sense for him to come in. And not only did, did he just, he didn't just design the drag queen costumes. He also designed the normal Joe Schmo, you know, day-to-day costumes. And my goodness, like it's, it's brilliant. It's beautiful. It's colorful. It's relevant. It's true. So yeah, so across the board, when we, when we brought in our crew, we, we prioritized, you know, queer, trans, and BIPOC folks who could relate to the story, uh, primarily because, you know, we're working in these very low budgets. You know, this, this movie was produced at $1.5 million, not that big of a budget. And so when you're bringing in people and you're saying, hey, you are working on the show and we're going to pay you, but we're not going to pay you all that much, you want to bring in people who have a sort of beyond the financial motivation of getting paid to do work, also this sort of spiritual motivation you know, supporting a story that they believe in and that they want to see on screen. It's really powerful. You know, each of your products tells a powerful story. And I think you're alluding to this in terms of who you bring in and who you work with and how you build that culture on set. But how do you choose which stories to tell and ensure that they retain their authenticity? For sure. I mean, we get a lot of pitches constantly. And, you know, there's a couple factors that we look at. Obviously, I think Primarily, what we're always looking at is the story. Is is does firstly does it work? Is is it, a, is it a story that works? Do we think we sense all those kind of basic stuff? But also beyond that, uh, you know, we're asking ourselves the question, especially our team, which is fairly young. I think basically everyone on the team is under forty years old, so we're we're quite a young team and we always share projects with each other in terms of like what we're reading and what we're looking at but the biggest question we ask ourselves is would we watch it would we want to watch it if we saw this you know on a marquee if we saw this on a listing or you know a trailer on instagram or something like that would we say yes i'm gonna pay 15 bucks 20 bucks to watch it or you know gonna go see it at a festival or something like that so that's the key part of the looking at the story is that would we watch it? Is that something that excites us? Is this something that feels like something we would want to watch? And then we look at the creative team um, behind the project. You know, how big is the team? Is it is sometimes, you know, in some cases we look at a project and there's tons of producers and there's tons of people behind it. And it, it feels like, okay, how much of value are we actually bringing to the table or is it does it just feel cosmetic because if it's just cosmetic it doesn't make sense for us to come on board we really like to think about projects beginning to end you know we we aspire to become you know our own studio uh, you know however way you define that but we want to be there from you know not doesn't necessarily mean the inception of the project but throughout the development of the project through to 
its release. We want to have that hands-on approach because we want to see the audience respond to it. We don't we don't just want to produce it and then it's done. It like we deliver it to the distributor and the distributor does whatever they want to do with it. Now we actually get involved in in the process of the releasing and the marketing and you know in the conversation with the audience because that is the biggest satisfaction, especially for the question when we when we look to the project from the beginning and we ask ourselves the question, would we watch it? We have to see our audiences watching it and how our audiences responding to it. So we are very involved in, in the process. So we want to make sure that there's space for us to be there. And then finally, you know, it's it's looking at the team with regards to the track record. Um, what have they done before watching their films? You know, it's not just like, you know, we, we've gone down that that path before where we've just been like, oh, it looks great on paper. Uh, you know, great resumes, all that kind of stuff, and or great bios, and oh, let's just do it. No, we want to watch the films. We want to watch the films of, uh, that they've done before. Do we engage with that? Do we understand? Are we aligned on the vision for their vision and our vision for the project? Because, you know, we are creative producers on it. So, um, you know, it's not just, it, it is a job. It is, I go to work every day, but, you know, I like to go to work smiling and getting excited about the projects I'm doing. So that's definitely, those are all factors. That's awesome. Well, obviously Queen Tut will be coming out. Audiences will be seeing it and engaging with it, which is going to be fantastic. You know, other than Queen Tut, which is just, you know, about to be given to the world, is there a particular film or series that you've produced that holds a special place in your heart? I mean, we just premiered um, In Flames uh, at TIFF, which premiered at Cannes earlier this year. That's a really special project. I met the filmmaker at uh, the Canadian Embassy at, in Berlin uh, in 2020, right before the pandemic hit, actually. And Zarar, the filmmaker, and I have a quite like, a little bit of a similar story with regards to how we both left Canada. So I left Canada. I went to LA. He left Canada. He moved to Pakistan. Um, we both went to school. We both went to university in Canada. And he was someone I'd, ne I'd never met before. And I, I I know my way around the Canadian industry decently well. And so he was a Canadian who I did not know. And I was very surprised. And we were two brown guys, you know, in the Canadian embassy and the sea of a lot of Europeans and Canadians, you know, there. And so we got a chance to know each other just personally, but also understand each other from our story in terms of how we left Canada and our we're thinking about you know returning because I left in 2017 and the biggest reason I left was um, beyond the opportunity that was present in LA was the the limits that I saw in the Canadian funding system um, where I I just didn't see myself fitting in and similarly Zarar felt the same way and so he whereas I moved to LA he moved to Pakistan and in LA I did my work with Faith Pictures there and in Pakistan he built his own company, City Lights uh, Productions in Pakistan. And he produced short films that ended up going to Locarno in competition, Karmakarand, BFI, TEF. And I'm looking at this guy at in Berlin and I'm like, I don't think anyone in Canada knows who you are. Like just being serious and honest with him. And he's like, I don't think so either. And I, but I knew that his accolades, his success, his vision, his work definitely deserved support from the Canadian industry and audiences. 
So after the pandemic hit, we were both, you know, he was in Pakistan. I was staying with my parents in Toronto and we chatted and I recommended that he apply for funding with Telefilm Canada with the Canada Council for the Arts. I helped facilitate that. We got the financing and he made In Flames through that. The film is completely in Urdu. The film is completely shot in Pakistan with primarily a Pakistani cast uh, and crew. We have a Canadian actor, Omar Javed, who plays a role in the film, but he's also Pakistani, Pakistani Canadian. And, um, you know, really exciting Canadian crew on the composing side and the editing side of the post-production side. But ultimately, you know, it is a Canadian production. Telefilm proudly, you know, financed it and presented it at Cannes. But it's also, you know, it's a Pakistani production. And for me, as someone who's Indian, um, especially amidst what's going on right now between India and Pakistan, which is insane, it was another way of looking at decolonizing Hollywood, uh, almost in a sense, decolonizing Hollywood, because, you know, India is its own colonial power at this point right now. So to be able to give opportunity and voice to a Pakistani filmmaker, help him, you know, make his movie and tell his story, it's just really special. And I think it's a fantastic film. It's it's about uh, a young Pakistani woman who's studying to become a doctor who's haunted by these ghosts of patriarchy in Karachi. It's quite a compelling and, you know, it was a compelling script when I read it. And it's every time, you know, I, I'm a TIFF and people are, Coming to be, be coming to me being like I loved In Flames. It was such a fantastic film. It felt it felt really special. So uh, that's definitely got a great place in my heart. That is so so wonderful, and I think it it speaks to a success along the lines of fulfilling Faye Pictures' mission. Um, I'm curious, can you share some other successes or challenges Faye Pictures has faced in creating inclusive stories and, and content? Yeah, for sure. I mean, what I would say is that the reason why I left Toronto in 2017 was was because the Canadian system, I don't think, was built for us. And when the pandemic hit in 2020, you know, I, I moved back in with my parents, as most people, many people did during the pandemic. So I was back in Toronto, you know, in that world. And I was hearing from different colleagues and the friends of the Canadian industry about um, you know, how they were faring through the pandemic. And then about uh, March, April, May, about three, month, three months into the pandemic, you know, the uh, death of George Floyd, which, you know, created really a global reckoning across, across the world. And so for me to be in Toronto in that, in that moment um, and, and convene, you know, over Zoom with... You know, I think we, after George Floyd, I think a, a week later, 88 producers all across Canada got on a Zoom call together and asked the question, what do we do about this? How do we make sure that this kind of thing doesn't happen? That, you know, our our our, our police or our, our citizens, our society doesn't alienate someone like George Floyd to the point that he, you know, died. So a lot of questions around systemic racism and all that kind of stuff. And what precipitated from that call was a lot of action, a lot of activism. I mean, we granted we had a lot of spare time on our hands, you know, and I think it was it almost was necessary that, you know, you have all the spare time in your hands. You're frustrated about how the system works and 
Now you've got all this time and you're going to try and fix it. So that's what we did. Along with a collective, a number of other producers and filmmakers, we pushed the system to the point that things started to change. So reforms were happening at Telefilm Canada, at the Canadian Media Producers Association, at the Canada Media Fund. These massive, you know, funds that have carried, you know, up to $500 million a year in, in, in financing were now shifting, you know, their language and shifting not just their language, uh, but also their programming. Um, you know, Telefilm and Canada Media Fund introduced programs, funding programs that were dedicated towards Black, uh, Indigenous, and people of color. And that actually ended up, while that was, you know, activism on on one side of things, it benefited my business as well, because for Queen Tut, I was, man I was able to close my financing without any producer investments, because the Canada Media Fund introduced uh, a new fund called the Pilot Program for Racialized Communities, which granted us the, that last bit of money that we needed to, to close our financing, go to production, and, you know, not be personally held in that equity stake where I'm investing my own money into the production, especially in, in this economy and in this marketplace where, you know, films are not necessarily selling at high prices, to not have that risk and to be able to you know, feel safe in collecting my own producer fees and collecting my own corporate overhead fees without having to put that back into the production was exceptionally meaningful. It meant that I was not going to sleep stressed about the production or going to, you know, all those kind of things. And so I think it made a better opportunity for us to make a better production because we weren't so stressed or concerned about, um, you know, how are we going to make the money back? Rather, just make a good film and put it out there into the world. So, yeah, that really, that struggle of being able to close your financing without putting an investment in is now sort of, sort of not necessarily solved completely, but it was definitely helped through that process. So definitely as, you know, my role in, at BIPOC TV and Film and the Board of Directors is to ensure that other filmmakers from those communities are able to feel safe when they go to production, uh, not just financially, but also, but also, you know, on crew on set. So we do a lot of like training and anti-racism training, especially on set and stuff like that. So we do a lot of programming in, in those spaces ultimately to create safer and better spaces, you know, in production. That's great. You know, I was, it actually leads into my next question. And you just brought it up naturally, which is, you know, in being the co-chair of uh, the BIPOC TV and Film Board and a part of the Canadian Media Producers Association's EDI Action Committee, like, I'm curious, how do you see these organizations shaping the future of inclusive filmmaking in Canada? And a part of that question, I'm also curious, because I think you spoke to it, that, like, you all are changing the culture and creating opportunities for different types of stories to be told in addition to maybe giving some more nuanced ideas or, or your perspective on how the organizations are shaping the future. I'm also curious, like how those programs work. Like you were just mentioning, like maybe some funding goes to a film. Should that film be profitable? Does it get paid back? Like how does the splitting work of these types of stories coming to market, becoming successful and, and what happens then? 
So we've been pretty lucky uh, in Canada. Uh, a lot of the funding is soft in some ways. So some of it's grant money. Uh, so grant money means you don't have to pay it back, which is great. And some of it is um, equity. Uh, so, you know, the government of Canada through Telefilm takes an equity stake in the productions that it finances at a certain budget level. The Canada Media Fund, on the other hand, what they do is they top up license fees. So if you have a Canadian broadcaster that fin finances your film, so you like a Bell Media Crave, uh, which is our HBO in Canada, says, okay, we want to finance 10% of your movie. Okay, great. You get the 10% financing. The Canada Media Fund can then come in and say, okay, we'll fund another 20% of your production. Um, and that comes in the form of a license fee top-up because th the way they're funded is through broadcast. Uh, bro all broadcasters in Canada have to uh, pay around 5% of their profits into the Canada Media Fund. This is also just, um, there's been, and we're also part of this on at CMPA and at BIPOC TV and Film, is um, there's a new bill that was introduced. Uh, it's been it's been going for the last couple of years. It's been about three years it's been going. C11, which is, uh, which modernizes the Broadcasting Act. So the Broadcasting Act basically tells all the broadcasters, you have to pay 5% of your revenues into the Canada Media Fund to benefit create Canadian content that benefits Canadian audiences and benefits the Canadian industry. Netflix, Amazon, Paramount, plus all these streaming services were excluded from that uh, definition of a broadcaster. The new legislation that has been passed and is now currently being implemented now includes the streaming services into that broadcasting uh, definition. So now there's basically Netflix, Amazon, all these companies have to start putting money into the Canada Media Fund that then goes towards um, Canadian productions. So that's all great and good. The work that uh, our organizations have been doing, as well as other organizations in Canada have been doing, has been making sure that, okay, great, we have this new bill that's coming into, you know, coming into Parliament. Um, how does this affect racialized communities? How does this affect 2S LGBTQIA plus communities? How does this affect the other communities that have been marginalized or underrepresented for so long in the Canadian media industry? Um, and so what's been great has been a conversation between a lot of our organizations and government um, with regards to inclusion uh, practices and policies in the let letter of the law. So in Bill C-11, there is uh, language that includes um, special conditions or considerations for communities that have been underrepresented in the Canadian media landscape. Um, you know, to run a business as a production company, to live your life as a filmmaker, as a director, or as a writer, you know, you have to get work constantly. And the issue that the reason why BIPOC TV and film was formed about 10 years ago was because a lot of these writers rooms and uh, a lot of these directing spots, a lot of these production companies, a lot of these broadcast executives were primarily cis straight white men. Um, and, you know, it didn't necessarily reflect the demographics of Canada. Canada is an increasingly more diverse country, uh, even in the last 10 years alone. I think the numbers of, uh, I think the immigrant population and the racialist population have nearly doubled. Um, 
and it's only growing from here. I mean, we, Canada specifically and uniquely is a country that um, encourages immigration, primarily skilled immigration, but nonetheless immigration um, is looking for talented people from all over the world to come and be Canadian. So our uh, funding system, the way we discuss Canadian heritage and Canadian identity has to shift to align with these, you know, economic and immigration policies that that our government is is purporting. So those two things coming together have been really important in, in terms of making sure that those considerations are made. And so there is um, specific funding that is meant to be earmarked for those communities in in Canadian legislation, in Canadian law. That's fascinating. I mean, you seem like an incredible resource to the community on how to navigate some of these sort of subjects and opportunities. To that end, I mean, how does your role on the advisory board at the Future of Film Showcase kind of help emerging filmmakers? Yeah, no, I think it's it's that's a great opportunity that I've had. Um, I actually co-founded the festival with um, with Eric Bizzari, um co-founder who currently as the artistic director at, at the at the festival. So he and I started the uh, the festival first year at film school uh, in Toronto because we we both felt like there there was had not really been space for showcasing you know future talent especially in, in a very like uh celebratory and um yeah mm-hmm. in, a, in a celebratory way and in, in, in experience that, that felt more than just the festival more than just like uh oh we'll put it up in a on a screen somewhere you know at a museum or at a at, at a school and and play it there uh we really wanted it to feel like it was going to the movies and you're going to the movies and you're seeing what the future of cinema looked you got you got an early look, first look. You know, everyone likes a look, a good first look. Um, so that was the idea behind Future Film Showcase when we co-founded it. I since left the organization when I moved to LA, and now I, I sit on the advisory board. And you know, it's a couple of things. It's it's making sure that the organization can sustain itself. You know, a lot of these nonprofit organizations, you know, it's not easy to get operational funding for them. So you know, I think Future Film Showcase has about i want to say at least 10 to 15 staff year-round and that's you know that's a big cost for the festival so in terms of building opportunities for emerging filmmakers the first things first things first is we got to make sure our staff get paid and you know then the organization can run itself so that we can continue to provide the programming so similar to bipoc tv and film they're both nonprofit organizations that you know require funding to be able to proceed with their, uh, their 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 stated mission you know for future film showcase that's for emerging filmmakers for bipoc tv the film that's for for bipoc filmmakers so i do a lot of work with helping them fundraise as well as figure out the programming and help to make sure that uh, we continue to align with the original stated mission of the organization support that next generation of filmmakers and make sure that we're doing that not just through the screenings, but through industry programming, mentorship, um, you know, meetings with executives, bringing in executives, doing keynotes, doing industry panels, all that kind of stuff gives it a full, you know, 360 um, experience, basically. So the idea is that the, the festival is that 360 experience where you get to, if you get selected with your film, or even if you don't get selected with your film, you just show up to the festival. 
there are all these opportunities where you can grow your career by connecting with these people that, that you know, folks on the advisory board or folks on the staff have already been connected to, and you sort of have that door open. So I've generally been someone who likes to open a lot of doors and, you know, even like, for example, like within flames, it's just like the way I see it is I just opened the door and I just said, walk through it if you want to. And, and that's what sort of, you know, Zerar did with, with, uh, within flames and, and what we, what we've seen, you know, we've, the festival has been going on a feature film showcase for about, I think 10 years now we, we hit our 10 year mark. So congrats to both the showcase and as well as all of those filmmakers. It's awesome. So we've had a chance to see the proof in the pudding with regards to the, one of some of the first filmmakers that we've supported. Um, one of my favorite filmmakers that we've constantly been featuring and constantly been working with has been Carol Angwin, um, who I met, I think when she was 16 years old. So she was still in high school at the time, but she was making some really fantastic films. And so we put up one of her films at our festival and helped her and supported her and you know, she's constantly come back to us and sent stuff over and worked with us, you know, not not only in showcasing her films, but also in now at this point, you know, speaking at panels and, you know, mentoring future filmmakers. So there has really been this proof in the pudding with regards to the give and take and the the the, the growth of filmmakers through through the festival. That's great. You know, a slight pivot, but you know, you spent some time at Osgood Hall Law School. And I'm just very curious how, if at all, it intersects with your career in film. Massively. I mean, my legal bills are far smaller than, you know, some of the producers. I do a lot of my own paperwork, which may not necessarily be the, the best, you know, not everyone advises that that's what you do, but especially when you're running a, a small independent production company where, you know, you got to make ends meet, you got to run your payroll and everything like that. Some of these contracts, these agreements... I don't want to say they're fairly simple or boilerplate, but through that education at Osgood Hall Law School, I was able to understand what I'm signing, understand what I'm having other people sign, understand what I'm drafting, how I'm drafting it, how to make sure, you know, I've introduced language in, in contracts and agreements that no one's ever told me to include that language. And for example, for indigenous projects, uh, we have a company policy across all our projects, basically, that if we do have any, and this is based on um, pre-existing literature and guidelines, basically, that there's uh, pathways and protocols guidelines that were issued by the Indigenous Green Office that basically says that project produced, a create or a project that surrounds indigenous stories should have a sovereign holding with indigenous communities. So whenever we get involved in indigenous projects, we always take no more than 49% of the copyright or the fees or all that kind of stuff. So we generally partner with indigenous production companies. And that uh, principle is baked into our option agreements. So even in, in my option agreements on, on certain indigenous projects, the first, you know, usually your first, uh, uh, your first clause is conditions precedent or you know, just uh, the original chain of title and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for us, I've introduced, you know, language in, in my agreements that basically says that at no point throughout this production, sign letter of the law, basically in this agreement, will 
the project have less than 51% indigenous ownership, basically. And so that, that chain of title, when you go back and you go to production, you go back to that first option agreement, it's going to say that. So throughout the course of the production, throughout the course of the development, the distribution, the release of the film, it's baked in there that at no point will anyone who's not indigenous be able to hold and control the project in such a way. So going to law school, granted it was a week, it was a week long workshop just for entertainment law alone, especially in music and film and TV, but that learning helped me build that in. So then finally, when I do go to my lawyer and I say, Hey, listen, this is my option agreement. I'm about to sign this. Does this look good to you? You know, I'm only bothering them for maybe half an hour, maybe an hour. I'm not, you know, paying eight hours of, you know, legal fees and all that kind of stuff for them to deliberate, negotiate, and all that kind of stuff. So all that cost savings that we incur because we didn't have to do that, then go back into costs that are meaningful for us. So, you know, especially because we do a lot of expenditures in queer, trans, and BIPOC communities, if we have more money that's available to us to invest into those communities, it suddenly becomes a win-win for everybody. That's really powerful. And I think it's um, powerful in terms of the business case of filmmaking, in addition to the power of the stories that your films are making. So I, I'm really glad I asked that asked you that question. You know, I'm curious, you know, with your vast experience, where do you see the future of filmmaking heading, especially when it comes to representing queer, trans, and BIPOC voices? This has been really interesting. Um, I mean, there's definitely been quite a movement, a lot of different funds and programs and opportunities, both in Canada and America, and I think as well in Europe as well. But uh, specifically in, in the realm of queer cinema, and I think as well in other, other uh, places, but at least in queer cinema, what I've been seeing actually has been an increased competition. So Queen Tut, which we're exceptionally proud of as a film, has not necessarily got into every queer festival that we submitted to. And that's not often the case. Often queer festivals are lacking in content. And so we'll take, not, I'm not saying whatever they'll get, but we'll be more open, especially we've been, you know, we've had queer films with festivals for, I think, over six years now. Uh, so I've done the circuit many times. Um, uh, I, 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 I'm, long-standing relationships with a lot of queer festival programmers. So, you know, it's, we have a personal relationship and personal repertoire, but even still to get that rejection letter from a queer festival and say, sorry, there's just been too much good queer content out there that we can't program your film actually puts a smile on my face. It says, okay, well, I need to work harder and produce a better film next time. But also it says, wow, there's such, there's been such more of an open process of producing queer cinema in, in the world that I don't necessarily need to be there to champion it completely. It's, there's people there all over the world who are doing that. So that's really exciting and enlightening and, and gives me an opportunity to say, okay, so where are the spaces where it's where, where we're missing stuff? Where, where are we missing, you know, where's the underrepresentation? So that's been really exciting to see, uh, in all honesty. So I'm hoping to see that continue. And I'm hoping to see that continue as well in, in South Asian cinema, in African cinema. So I'm, I'm, we're quite invested in a lot of Global South filmmaking at the, right now. Um, 
we are not completely dabbling into Latin American or South American cinema just yet. We've got our hands full quite a bit with some projects in, in, in the African continent, the South Asian subcontinent. So we're focusing on that right now. And I would say the other thing that we're seeing is this renaissance of Pakistani cinema, which is quite unique. Um, so last year there was a film called Joyland, which was um, uh, directed by Sam Sadiq and produced by a friend of mine, of course, Rocharan, um, which ended up getting shortlisted for the Oscars, you know, after winning the Unsudden Regard Jury Prize. So, and it had a fantastic life as a film, went from Cannes to TIFF to Sundance. Um, and then, you know, and while we're not as we don't necessarily know everyone completely we're quite fr we're good friends with some of our other colleagues in, in Pakistani cinema. So we have obviously In Flames, which is a Pakistani film, but there's also the film Queen of Mind Dreams by Fazia Mirza, which premiered at TIFF to raving reviews, um, is in competition at BFI London, and will you know go on to be, I think, a fantastic... I saw it at TIFF. It was fantastic. And so I really am honestly seeing this renaissance of Pakistani cinema where, you know... Prior to Joyland, it was really few and far between that films were getting made. And primarily the reason I think is, is because of the diaspora, the connection between the South Asian diaspora in North America and in Europe, now getting involved more and more in, in, in telling Pakistani stories and telling, you know, more unique, dynamic Indian stories. You know, we just saw um, the biggest grossing Indian film of all time. Basically, we're like the, the fastest grossing Indian film of all time, this film Jawan, which is obviously big star to Shah Rukh Khan. But that is a really cool film. I mean, it's very mainstream. It's uh, uh, in the South, they call it mass, like mass, mass audience, mass, mass film. Um, but that is a film that is a co-production between North and South, which is actually not common at all. So, you know, Shah Rukh Khan is producing it with his wife, Gauri Khan. He's starring in it. Um, it's shot in, you know, it's shot in Hindi, but translated to Tamil and Telugu. But it's a South Indian director, South Indian composer, you know, South Indian crew. So that collaboration is really exciting. So I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing more of that. I'm really keen to see more co-productions between, you know, Pan-African countries. You know, it'd be cool to see a Nigerian South African co-production more and, you know, other kinds of co-productions that make you know usually when we think about co-productions i think in the european context we think oh like luxembourg with belgium and france and germany like the you know great example is triangle of sadness which is like british and swedish and all this stuff. but i think now we're starting to see a bit more co-productions between countries in the global south which is really exciting so i'm keen to see more of that that's really neat i i think it's it's really inspiring that it's a global perspective and how story impacts all of us. And that's a really powerful kind of vision for the future of storytelling and cinema. You know, for those that are inspired by your mission and wanting to make a change in the industry, what advice would you offer them? What resources should people be looking into? Um, what communities should people be kind of like dialed into in, in order to be a part of the conversation and making change? I think there's a combination of... You know, I think what's what's changed re recently has been, you know, our 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 Hollywood trades, Deadline Hollywood, and and Variety have started to work a lot more with um, global correspondents. So, you know, Deadline and Variety have folks who are based in India, based in China, 
um, based in Africa who will talk about uh, those kind of um, big successes or big stories. So ultimately, I think, you know, uh, for me, the best way to access the, for, oh, the first way I accessed that cinema was through tip. So going to a film festival and just watching really great films and reading the credits and understanding who's behind this film, what are they like? And then, you know, after the Q&A, shaking their hand, meeting them, there was this great filmmaker I saw, I met at TIFF in 2021, um, Ritwik Parikh, who did a film called Dug Dug, which we're actually picking up for distribution in North America. And, you know, I just saw his film at TIFF. I loved it. I shook his hand. We exchanged Instagrams. And, you know, now we're connected and we're chatting and discussing things on WhatsApp and all that kind of stuff. So that in-person engagement is definitely key to it. Um, Going to films, watching films, understanding them, reading the credits. And then I think beyond that, it's, for me, it's reading the trades and and looking for, for the stories that aren't about Johnny Depp and whatever and all this stuff. It's like, what's that, what's that small little story about you know, what's happening over in Marrakesh or what's happening in, in Saudi Arabia, you know, it's big boom right now in Saudi Arabia. Naga was a big hit at TEF and a lot of, you know, investment that's happening in African and Middle Eastern cinema right now. So it, and a lot of the information I get is, is two-handed. One is through the trades and the other way is through in-person interactions. I just meet people and see films at festivals. And I start to learn more about how things work and even though, you know, maybe I'm, I'm not involved in any Saudi cinema whatsoever, but, uh, you know, I'm still hearing about it a lot because it's it's present and, and, and there's a lot of work that's happening there. So it's it's interesting. Yeah, that's amazing. Thank you so much for your time. And I know all of our listeners on production really appreciate the time. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Cameron.